0: Lord Jesus, I thank You that our salvation is um, secure in You and not dependent upon us. You give it to us and You keep it for us. We have not earned it and we cannot maintain it with our works. We simply have faith but when you say no one will snatch us out of your hand, you mean it. So we thank you and praise you this morning for holding us fast. As we open your word. We again ask that you would bless it. That your words would shine through. That your words would have impact and pierce our conscience and pierce our hearts for good and for correction and for all that You have in store. If anything, let us major on what the Scriptures say. In Jesus' name, Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles with me, please, and open them to the New Testament letter of Colossians. Back to Colossians chapter 2. Thank you to Doug who... Um, Filling in the last couple of weeks, we were joking this morning if we gave him any more time, he might just go verse by verse through Acts backwards, and so we were afraid of what that might do. Um, we're we're in Acts, I mean not Acts, Colossians, chapter two, verse sixteen, and I had originally thought we would finish the chapter this morning. And then as I study and prepared, I thought, well, probably not. And then as I looked at my watch this morning, I've got 10:05, so probably we will. Um, so we've got plenty of time to get through it, I think. If you remember, and if you don't, I'll remind you, Colossians chapter 2 verses eight through 23 are really one major section in the letter here of Paul's writing. It's an important point in the entire letter. Um, it is the most explicit section in the letter that identifies the false teaching that Paul is writing against. And yet, it's still very vague and, and somewhat unclear as to what exactly Paul's fighting against in this Colossian church because he doesn't name it. In verses 8 through 15, he's written about it in a positive fashion. He keeps. Sending our uh, attitude, our, our attention and affections back to Christ. In verse 9, he tells us that the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. Verse 10, we have been filled in him. Verse 11 and 12, we've been made new and transformed in him. Verse 3, we've been pardoned by him. Verse 14, our debt has been canceled by him. In verse 15, we have the victory in him. As we come to verse 16 now, Paul shifts slightly and now he looks at the false teaching in a more negative way again identifying elements about it there are some very obvious jewish elements about this false teaching but there are also some very obvious pagan elements about this false teaching and theologians much smarter than i have debated for years and years and years what exactly the false teaching is with no general agreement exactly. So I particularly land on the view that it is a syncretic philosophy. And what that means is it's a mixture or a conglomeration of a whole lot of different religions compiled into one systematic thought or argument. I believe that's why Paul doesn't give it a name. Because there are Jewish elements and pagan elements and Greek elements Myth, mythology elements all interwoven together to make one general false teaching. And Paul's concern is to elevate Christ to such a place that all false teachings would melt away. So he enters into verse 16 through 23 and he highlights this teaching. He talks about its different elements. And all throughout he does what we would expect him to do. Elevate Jesus. As the antidote to heresy creeping into the church or the life of a believer. What's your antidote? What's your vaccine to false teaching in this world? It is holding a high view of Christ. And not letting that view waver. Verse 8 is the whole point of this section. He tells us, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or any kind of system of thought or good-sounding argument. Let no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the basic elements of the world, and not according to Christ. Any religious teaching... That promises eternal life or godliness or satisfaction that is not, as he says in verse A, according to Christ or founded on Christ or informed by Christ is dangerous. We are to be a people who so treasure Jesus that we are not content with his absence in any teaching or any instruction or any practice or any ministry or so on. We are to be a people who so treasure and delight in the Jesus of Scripture that we would never be content with somebody adding to His work or adding to His person. Promising some secret knowledge or secret work that gains you special favor before God apart from Christ. At best, such teaching is works-based morality and at worst, such teaching... Is entirely false about the character of God, but any teaching that is void of Jesus causes us to miss the gospel. And when the gospel is missed, our salvation is missed, and God's glory is missed in our lives. Look with me in verse 16. Let's read through verse 23, and then begin to walk through as much as we can this morning. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the basic elements of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In verse 16, Paul Directly connects us to what he's already written about. Again, verse 9, the fullness of God in Christ. Verse 10, the fullness of Christ in us. Verse 11 and 12, transformation and newness in Christ. 13, pardon in Christ. 14, uh, removal of penalty. And 15, victory. He's pointing us right back to all of those truths with that word, therefore. Essentially saying, because of all of these things, because of the work of Christ on the cross, the victory that he's secured for you, all those wonderful benefits of knowing Jesus and having salvation in him, Because of all of that, verse 16 is true. And you should believe it and live by it. And what is verse 16 and the rest of the passage? Let no one pass judgment on you. This is the first of two phrases that are identical in that way. Let no one something. Verse 16, let no one pass judgment. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. And the phrases are meant to be strong They're meant to be absolute. They're meant to be universal. When Paul says no one, he would tell us, I mean no one. Absolutely no one. Emphatically no one. Universally no one. This first one, let no one pass judgment on you. The the phrase judgment there can literally be rendered the judgment of God. What Paul's writing about here is not mere criticism that might come upon the church or mere criticism that might come upon the believer's life. He's talking about those who pronounce divine judgment and condemnation on an individual. Let no one bring about an indictment on your spiritual maturity because of these things. Let no one look at you and call you condemned. Let no one look at you and pronounce the judgment of God upon you because you do not do these things. What are these things in verse 16? They're rites and rituals. They hold uh, Jewish elements within them. the, The Jewish faith. Some of these things are very obviously Jewish. The first portion of verse 16 he says let no one pronounce God's judgment on you in questions of or regards to food and drink let no one tell you that your godliness is based on food and drink he goes on and he shares even more Jewish things days of observance let no one pass judgment on you in regards to festivals and new moons and sabbaths. Let no one tell you that you're disobeying God according to such rituals. Before I explain such things, I want to pause here just for a moment because I think Paul's heart and intent in this passage is very, very pastoral. He's not writing... Uh, an indictment or an anger to these Colossian Christians. He's writing for their protection. And I believe the intent here is not just that we shouldn't let outsiders pass judgment on us in regards to such things, but that we also shouldn't pass judgment on one another in regards to such things. You and I as brothers and sisters in Christ are not to look at each other and judge each other's spiritual condition or spiritual maturity based on non-biblical standards. Whether or not this false teaching had crept into the church at this time is debatable. We don't know. It could have been threatening the church from the outside. It's it's potentially going to come in. Or it could have been full-blown in the church's teaching. I, I don't necessarily think that's the case because... Usually, when that's the case, Paul writes much more fervently, much more harshly. But irregardless, Paul was concerned about it being in the church. That's why he brings it up. We aren't to be a people who judge one another and condemn one another based on things that are extra or non biblical. Judgment of a person's spiritual growth, spiritual character, personal godliness or holiness or devotion to Christ that is based on non-biblical criteria or man-made tradition or wisdom or rituals, listen, is an abhorrent, abhorrent exercise of pride. That is to be found nowhere in the heart of a child of God. Because it's found nowhere in God. We are to help one another thrive in the faith. We are to watch the fruit of one another. We are to exhort and admonish one another to honor Christ and walk with Christ. But the moment, the moment we elevate tradition, and man-made wisdom as the criteria of judging one another is the moment we no longer reflect or resemble god god's standard alone is the measurement of spiritual health and spiritual maturity and godliness and life and holiness not your opinions not my opinions not my standard not your standard not our inventions of rights and rituals I say this because I fear this is all too common I have too many conversations with brothers and sisters who have been hurt by the actions and words and attitudes of one another I find and encounter too many brothers and sisters who have been harmed by worldly condemnation not according to biblical standards. And I see too many brothers and sisters who are even too prideful to recognize that they are harming others when they heap condemnation on them by standards not found in the Bible. The answer to such things is for us all to repent. We have one standard, and that standard is Christ and His Word. And we ought to repent any time we stray from it or add to it. This is our sole sufficient source for authority and government. We need not anything else nor should we add to it to make it better or improve it. And if we are doing such things or are tempted to do such things, then we ought to repent. Ask God for His merciful forgiveness and for help to uphold the Scriptures alone as the glorious sufficient rule for our lives. but if you are a brother and sister who sits today under the pressure from other brothers and sisters, then take the note of encouragement from Paul himself in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in regards to such things. You're free in Christ. You do have a liberty in Jesus. Your debt has been paid. Your penalty has been removed. And your victory is sure. So you don't need man-made rituals to earn favor with God or to maintain your faith in God. You need instead to be strong in Christ and content with His approval. Now, what are these things that Paul is identifying? Well, again, food and drink as mentioned in verse 16 carries an air of Jewish religion with it. It makes us think of the Jewish dietary laws, doesn't it? For God imposed upon His people Israel certain foods that they were not to eat so that they would be set apart for Him. They would be distinct from the nations around them. They would, they would be holy. They were to be one of three marked signs that uh, you were God's people and belonged to God's people. Those three signs were circumcision, the dietary laws, and the Sabbath. So they were very important to God to set His people apart. Uniquely, though, there are not any continual drink restrictions in God's law. Like there are food restrictions, you cannot ever eat this food. There are not drink restrictions saying you can't ever have this drink. There are situational restrictions to drinks. Uh, For instance, a priest isn't to have wine when he's going into the tent of God. Or a Nazarite who's taken the Nazarite vow couldn't have wine while he was under his vow. There's about two or three more. But still, what Paul has to say in verse 16 seems to be the common false teaching notion of here's God's command, abstain from certain foods, and let me add to it, abstain from certain drinks. It seems as if this false teaching that the Colossian Christians are having to deal with was telling them, if you want to honor God, if you want to be godly, if you want to display your godliness in the world, then you need to avoid certain foods and certain drinks. Don't eat this. Don't drink that. Don't give approval to this food or that drink. Nothing more than a godliness built on works. As the second half shows us as regards to the days of observance, he mentions festival, new moon, and then obviously Jewish, Sabbath. Again, it seems as if the teaching is that if you observe these days, then you're godly. A real Christian will keep the festivals and keep the new moon and keep the Sabbath. You can't please God if you don't do these things. Paul uses some similar language elsewhere. He writes and he says, If my brother stumbles because I eat meat, then I'm not going to eat meat. Is that the same as what he's writing against here? The difference in such things is that Paul is concerned with the health of a brother. In verse 16, these things are telling you how to be godly. This is what the false teaching is that's being propagated on these believers. Do this and you earn God's favor. Do this and you please God. Do this and God's special attention falls on you. And what's the answer to that? Verse 17, Paul writes and he says, these things are a shadow. That's not where real godliness lies. That's not where real favor with God is found. That's not where real life exists and real satisfaction in Christ exists. Douglas Moo in his commentary in this verse writes and says, Paul is saying, do not let anyone impose upon you a program of spiritual development that does not have Christ At its heart. And so the answer in verse 17 is these are a shadow. The real answer to godliness, the real answer to favor with God, the real answer to salvation, the real answer to spiritual satisfaction and nourishment in life is Jesus. It's not your works, it's not tradition, it's not worldly wisdom or man made ideas. I've read this passage countless times and, and I'll keep reading it because it is one of my gravest concerns. Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 talks about this very issue Himself to the Pharisees. In Matthew 15 verse 1, says the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, then he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Paul writes and he says, such things are a shadow. They're fleeting. They're temporary. They come and they go. The substance of your entire faith, is Christ. Paul's usage here of this language was common for the day. It's even found in philosophical writings of the time. This contrast between shadow and substance. It's meant to convey an appearance versus reality. These things appear to be good. They appear to be godly. But reality is Christ. He says as much as in verse verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Avoiding food and avoiding drink and keeping the festival and keeping the new moon and, and keeping the Sabbath, they may seem super spiritual, but they're an appearance, a shadow. Reality is Jesus. Well, how, do we, how do we measure godliness? How do we measure spiritual maturity? How do we measure holiness? How do we measure spiritual growth? It's by a person treasuring and clinging to Christ. Christ is the substance. Christ is the, the foundation. Jesus is the nourishment. Jesus is the cornerstone. Your spiritual growth hinges entirely on Christ. Not on you keeping these traditions. Not on you keeping. Rituals. You and I are tempted all the time. To supplant Christ with something else. It's the temptation we find common throughout all of scripture. To supplant the promises of God with something else. God promised in the garden fulfillment, goodness, relationship with Him. Adam and Eve were tempted to add to that list just a little, and they did. That's the temptation we all face. You and I are tempted to measure our spiritual maturity and health on things like morality, if I'll just be better morally, then God will be pleased. Church commitment. If I'm there every week, which I'm advocating for you, if I'm there every week, if I'm plugged in, if I'm involved, then God will be happy. We turn to prayers for a sense of spirituality, for a sense of godliness. We turn to strict pharisaical behavior. We turn to Bible reading and money giving and service and even our sound doctrine. All of which are good things, but such things without Christ, informed by Christ, founded upon Christ, and exercised in Christ, They make us little more than whitewashed tombs. We can be the most moral people. The most committed people. The most sound people. But if we do not have Jesus, we do not have anything. And if we do not have Jesus, we are not one millimeter closer to God. Christ is the substance. Your spiritual life is entirely dependent upon Jesus. And these good things that we are called to do, we do them as informed by and for the glory of of Christ not to earn favor with God and not to think that it will make us better in the sight of God. The only thing that will make us right with God. Is Christ as our Lord and Savior. So if I were to call him anything from verses 16 and 17, I would call him. Freedom from rituals. Because no longer do we have to keep certain standards of rites and passages to have God's favor. We have to cling to Christ and let Him transform us from the inside out. We submit ourselves to Jesus and let Him have His transforming work in our lives. We surrender ourselves to Christ And say, you only are my hope to be with God. You only are the way that I have access. You alone are my everything. And whatever good works I do, and whatever good I accomplish, I only accomplish because you have changed my heart to do it. I only accomplish because I'm submitting to you as my Lord. You are my everything. By all means, grow in morality. By all means, pray, read the Bible, have sound doctrine. All those things we advocate all the other times. But do not do them divorced from Jesus. For you will still remain lifeless. So Paul looks to these Colossian Christians. He says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in regards to these peripheral unbiblical things. Don't let anybody condemn you, pronounce judgment on you, write you off, or disregard you by standards that are not given by God Himself. Instead, hold tight to the substance. Don't go chasing shadows. Don't be distracted by things that are secondary. Cling only to Jesus. Would you take some moment with me, some time here, and, and close your eyes for a moment? I want you to spend some time praying, if you would, please. I'd like you first to ask God if there is any way in your life that you have tried to add to the work of Christ. You know, so often we think that we have to have faith to be saved, but then we have to have works to maintain that faith and that salvation. Would you take a moment and just ask God, is there any way that I'm trying to earn your favor apart from Christ? And then would you take a few moments and plead for Jesus to be your only treasure. I'm going to give us just a few minutes here of silent reflection on these things before I pray. Father, You know our hearts. You know our frames. That we are of the dust. That we are so easily distracted that in so many ways, perhaps even in every way, we are infants. We take the good things that You have given us and we often exalt them to the wrong place. We often try to replace Your Son as our only source of being with You and honoring You and glorifying You with our lives. We are prone to legalism. We are prone to works. We are prone to pride to think that we can accomplish anything on our own. It's not always false teaching from the outside that threatens us. It is often the temptation of our own fallen hearts. And what we need constantly is the reminder. That all we have is Jesus. Forgive us where we have tried to replace him. Forgive us where we have tried to elevate good works above faith in Him. And would You help us to realize that only in Christ do we have You. Only in Christ do we have life. Help us not to stray, Lord, as Your truth is always under attack. As too many churches and too many believers throughout the years have turned to a false gospel. Would you keep us? And would you help us to keep Christ as the head? Help us to keep Christ as the center. Help us to keep Christ as the foundation. In your name I ask for these things, Lord. Amen.